0: Before we restart this episode of Conversations with Kenyatta, I'm excited to tell you about my new partnership with Audible. Listeners can go to www.audibletrial.com backslash Kenyatta to receive a free 30-day trial. Audible is a wonderful resource with audiobooks for every reader. It even has titles from authors that have been on my podcast, such as Dr. Dan Bouch's Democracy's Data and Gail Lucasic's White Like Her. And please note that this is an affiliate link. So I may receive a commission with no cost to you, just a free trial with so many wonderful titles, and I love to read. But with that, here's this week's episode of Conversations with Kenyatta. Welcome to episode 46 of Conversations with Kenyatta. Today's guest is Vincent Leggett. He is the founder and president of the Blacks of the Chesapeake Foundation. Welcome, Vincent. So then, uh, where are you? Are you in Annapolis or where are you?
1: No. Yes, Annapolis, Maryland.
0: Okay, okay. Yeah, I used to live in um, Arlington and Virginia and Alexandria.
1: Where
2: are you at now?
0: Santa Monica, California. Oh, all right.
2: Sunshine (laughs) girl,
0: okay. Yes, yes. Well, I would say, now you would say it's sunny. I would say it's partly cloudy, but yes, I I like that. I moved, yeah. I'm from Detroit originally, so I'm not down with the cold weather anymore. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's why I decided to make the move here. So I've been here probably 14 years or so. Okay. Yeah, so sometime, sometime. But yeah, so cool.
2: I've read on you, I mean, you've had a, a lustrous, exciting career, a little of this, a little of that, and a yeah. whole bunch of everything and a bag of chips. So you're a real <laughs> influencer. <laughs> But I think one thing is that, you know, when you referred me to some of your previous uh, podcasts, your interview with old St. Clair Franklin, I was like his dad was my mentor. And so that's why I said, I'm going to stick with you. Reverend Dr. O. St. Clair Franklin was my pastor in Annapolis and I was his assistant. Wow. Uh, Oh went the last mile of the way with him and he uh, bequeathed his preaching library books and sermons and all to me. And uh, he was a PhD from Yale in clinical psychology in 1940. So, you know, he was a bad boy. Yes, yes. And for all of the seminaries and colleges and HBCUs that could have ended up with that collection, It was an honor for him to think of much of me and my ministry and my community work to entrust me with that uh, collection. And my goal is to, you know, do an anthology, reprint, A, B, C, D, Hmm. something uh, I could pass it on because I knew he wanted to give it to somebody that would do something with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm kicked in in the meantime but that is something that uh is important to me uh to do and to if I can't complete it nobody knows the day or the hour and it's a twinkling of the eye and <laughs> as they say the the flash of a lightning bug but uh that is something that uh I've always minded that collection and read from it and a lot of the books behind me are books from that collection and oh, wow. current project with uh the maryland state archives inventory cataloging and digitizing my blacks of the chesapeake collection and that body of work is a part of that collection mm, okay a lot of the sermons were handwritten and uh you know everybody has their unique handwriting, but he was out of era where penmanship and and writing legibly was something that was important to men of his ilk
0: mhm mhm mm-hmm. and with with the project that you have though, tell me a little bit about that with the Maryland State Archives. How did you get that project started, and sort of you know what's kind of the timeline of the project?
2: Well, for for 30 years, I started the Blacks of the Chesapeake in 1984 as a project. And in 1999, it evolved into a 501c3 foundation. And our primary purpose is documenting the contributions of African-Americans in the maritime and seafood processing industries. And I write books and curriculum guides and do documentary films and The project is almost like the Vegematic. I mean, I'm trying to find 50 different ways to tell a story about the contributions that Blacks have made because some people learn by seeing, smelling, touching, hearing. And so I work with fiber artists and poets and filmmakers and artists and storytellers, just trying to find different ways to continue to share that message. Both of my parents were elementary school teachers. They were born in North Carolina and came out of Fayetteville Teachers College uh, in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And one thing I found about people in elementary education, their whole approach to teaching, and particularly African-American and those from downtrodden lifestyles,
0: Mm
2: meet the students where they are versus where you think they should be.
0: Mm, Okay. I like that.
2: Okay. If you take that philosophy, you have to have a variety of tools in your kit. Mm -hmm. That is your philosophy of teaching where no matter what it takes, you keep trying things until the light bulb goes on or you find some style that uh gets them to lean in more mm-hmm. and that's what i call a master teacher versus those professors that you had and i had that still got tattered notes tattered lecture notes and been given the same speech for 20 years because they're tenured and don't need to do anything different right <laughs> we across those people all day long right exactly
1: <laughs> and
2: Interesting. So, uh But as a result of growing up in a household with elementary educators, I've always been a collector of everything. Mm. I mean, go to a wedding reception and the last person to leave because I'm picking up the program before before the trash man get them and I just throw them in boxes and bags. But 30 years later, I have over 40,000 photographs in my collection, oral histories, material records. Uh, memorabilia, playbills, uh, VHSs, Mm cassette, so forth. And so one of the things with African-American history and culture, it's never been a priority for institutions to collect. Their Mm -hmm. philosophy has been if George Washington didn't sleep there, it's not important or when they raise or knock down our communities and neighborhoods, nobody is doing archaeological digs. Right. Because there might be a few rusty nails and some fish bones, nothing to see here, keep it moving, bring in the bulldozers. And that could be our cemeteries, our homes, our churches, our schools. Right. And so one of the things that the Maryland Archive in our case, have been around since 1634 Mm -hmm. as the keeper of all of the land records and deeds and court records and state agency records since that time period. They had a very limited amount of African-American-based materials in their archives and particularly community-based archives. And so we started a conversation about Having the Blacks of the Chesapeake bring their collection in for processing. And during that time period, I had materials at the in laws' house, the outlaws' house, under beds, under couches, in spaces that weren't temperature controlled. Mm-hmm. The representatives from the archives, the special collections, the digitization people, library science had done a vulnerability study Mm. my 30 year collection. And I always thought that the photographs were the sweet spot of the collection. I mean, I write books, I pull from the materials, I use it in films and research projects, but they determined it was the cassette tapes and the VHSs 25 years out of that stuff in best conditions but with cold weather, hot weather we all had an 8-track that got hung up in the car (laughs) and uh, into that story or the cassettes that we got a a fountain pen in trying to rewind it and tape it but they found for a community based collection uh, they found a few tide marks on the boxes but no bugs the photographs didn't melt didn't stick things were still intact but they found that the vhs magnetic tape transfer Mm. if nothing else went bad let's save those and i had over 50 or 60 in that median Mm. they made the pick out my 10 greatest hits and they sent them to John Hopkins University's archives to digitize those. Mm -hmm. So it was really in that process. And that began about three years ago and I received a grant from the Maryland Center of History and Culture to hire interns and to partner with the Maryland State Archives. And one thing I found Miss Kenyatta is that they, archivists, take a long view of history. I mm. trying to get to the next paycheck or the next week. I don't have a long view on many things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, being a, a, a black man from East Baltimore smoking cigarettes, <laughs> when the when insurance actuary looked at my chart, it didn't look good. So. And I would say I'm closer to 70 than 60. Matter of fact, I'll turn 70 this year on June 26. Mm. But what their approach was, let's take time and get the system right. The old Dewey Decimal system, the uh, index card, but now it's all electronic. Mm-hmm. But when It's in box 22, folder 18, on the shelf near the water cooler. It has to be there. Right. Only that the metadata, the who, what, when, and why, Mm -hmm. just a yellow cat sitting on black Cadillac, Vince, why is it in your collection? Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And so they call that writing the metadata and keyword searches in which People gonna use the same searches that the National Archives use for keywords and the Merlin archives, because they wanted my collection to have all of the attributes of other institutional collections. Mm-hmm. So when people on the button, it looks like everybody else. So those things were very important to, to them. And they really had to duct tape me in the chair to finally yield, I mean, they beat me down and I finally <laughs> yielded to their system because they're taking the long view, uh, more dollars can make it go faster, but if you don't have the system in place, mm-hmm. it's not gonna go anywhere anyway.
0: Right, and you want it to be useful to folks, right? I mean, that's the whole purpose of getting yeah. it available, right? So people can actually search, search find, access, and, and use those documents um, and that collection and records in their own research, especially and, family.
2: and I think part of how they flipped me was for your own purposes, number one, and then for researchers and scholars and teachers and students.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And
2: so I think that once they personalized it, no vent, so it could be more accessible to you. Right. That- it just changed my whole orientation because I kept thinking I wanted to be accessible to others. But mm-hmm. well, it's really the engine, the heartbeat of Blacks of the Chesapeake is this collection, and it's the 1980s to today. And the same way I use collections from the 50s or 1902 or 1860. 100 years from now, this is going to be a premier collection. 50 years from now, it's going to be a premier collection because if you weren't on the boat, you didn't get the shot. You didn't collect the the program from the funeral. And the other thing that they helped me with, Kenyatta, is it's not the prettiest picture that wins the prize. The content, who was on the boat, what was going on, Mm -hmm. And so often, even when I would go through the photographs, I was looking for the perfect sunset or a perfect rainbow. And they said, everybody got sunsets and rainbows. And they just helped me understand the value of capturing a slice in time. Mm -hmm. Equally important, you had to be there to get the shot. You had to be there to get the interview. And many of the people that I interviewed
0: 30 years ago were 70 years of age at that time. Right, right. So with this with this project, you mentioned that you got a grant. Did you write? Because uh, I know people always say to me for certain things, why don't I get a grant for something? Right, and I but I know. It sounds, it's easier said than done. And grant writing is kind of like a a process and there are folks that just focus on that themselves. So did you write the grant yourself or did you have someone help you kind of write the grant so that you could fund this project?
2: It was a collaborative with the Maryland archives folks because again, that's the world they are from. Writing to, I had the content and could provide the content But the chapters and the verses and the whereas and uh, the sequences, what are the qualifications of people that's going to be working on it? Mm -hmm. And that was part of their long view because once we wrote the grant, put the system in place, did some samplings of the various media that I have, and now it's ready to submit to the Mellon Foundation or now it's, Ready to go to the Ford Foundation or any other institution
1: mm-hmm. because
2: concept is there, the process is there, it's been fact-checked, and the people that put it together are all credentialed incredible people. Mm-hmm. And we had graduate students working as interns, doctoral students, postdoctoral students,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and another so that's what I would say. It was a collaborative effort. And even in my case, I mean, uh, my work background is a K 16 education. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I've run two multi million dollar housing agencies. I've worked mm-hmm. for the Natural Resources for 10 years, I've been school board president. I have a bachelor's degree in urban planning and community development and a master's degree in public administration.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And so even in my case, uh, I'm not the typical community griot, typical community storyteller. Mm -hmm. I fashion myself as an intellectual gangster. (laughs) Okay. Okay. And and the reason I say that is that my college professors and community leaders, they would not just go to the town hall and make a speech. They would leave a white paper or a black paper on the table. Mm -hmm. And we've all heard fancy speech makers. I mean, passionate talks. Everybody's whipped up into a frenzy. But those speeches are ephemeral. It's Mm -hmm. like the smell of a new car. It smells good for about three weeks. And (laughs) that new smell is gone. But those that can make the speech and leave a record Mm. is a different class of advocates, a different class of champions. Mm -hmm. And I fashioned myself in that ilk that I'm going to make the speech and I'm going to leave a white paper or a black paper, Mm -hmm. but something that's written and documented, I'm going to turn into the clerk of the court and say, add this to the official record of the day's proceedings. Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm.
2: And even in my ministry, what I've learned from, O. say Claire Franklin have a manuscript.
0: Even if you throw it on the floor, have one. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I like that. Um, so for you with, you, you know, you've mentioned kind of the different projects that you do uh, to, to reach folks, you know, to meet the students where they are, not where you think they should be. So with that, uh, there's been a variety of media and in ways you've kind of explained the story and told the story of blacks of the Chucks Pete foundation, but I'm pretty, I'm very interested in sort of kind of what documentaries um, have you worked on and you know that have have you worked on just for the foundation as well as others you might have been, uh you know featured in based on your knowledge of Blacks of the Chesa- Chesapeake.
2: Right now we have two documentaries trending nationally and internationally. One is on Frederick Douglass, mm-hmm. the, or becoming Frederick Douglass. The other is heard, Harriet Tubman: Visions of Harriet. And these were produced by Stanley out of New York Mm -hmm. and PBS and all of their affiliates around the country and the world. In my case, uh, I was included as a subject matter expert and social commentator in both documentary films. Because... Douglas and Tudman were both born in Maryland on the Eastern Shore and salt run, water running through their veins mm-hmm. and directly in the wheelhouse of Blacks of the Chesapeake. We've always considered Douglas and Tudman as the bookends of Blacks of the Chesapeake. What mm. I with 30 years of lecturing and writing around the country is people want to hear big names first. I can't. <laughs> on the marquee at the Apollo, Vince Leggett coming. I'm going to say, her Tedman, Frederick Douglass are coming and Vince is tagging along. <laughs> That's what's going to be on the marquee at the
0: Apollo. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, it's funny. That's actually, those two documentaries is how I, how I actually found you. So I saw oh. both of them on PBS and I, when I watch, because I love PBS, I haven't been on PBS with Genealogy Roadshow. Um, when I watch those documentaries, I tend to like have a notebook and I write really fast because I'm trying to get everybody's name and, um, you know, to to just chat with them. Because I'm very interested in sort of the work that you do in when you're focusing on a community. Right. And the work that others do with maybe focusing on a community or, um, you know, just kind of focused on a specific area as it relates to African-American history. And. I want, to focus, I want to talk about community a little bit because I know as genealogists, sometimes what we do is we do have communities that we focus on because our ancestors lived in that community, right? If they never left um, and migrated somewhere else. But I feel like the way in which we focus on that community sometimes is not necessarily uh, focused on the cultural aspects of it and the kind of day-to-day life and historical context, but more focused on the names, dates, and places. So what advice, or how would you, you know, someone give advice to someone who wants to do a community-based approach and collection uh, to kind of get outside of the, the their wheelhouse of just facts, but make it broader?
2: Well, one of the things I would say is, and I've been schooled in this, that whether I'm doing community storytelling Oral histories documentary work is one I drive my pickup truck and, and not my convertible. That's step one.
1: Okay. Got it.
2: <laughs> the other thing is leave the pad and the camera and the pen in the car.
0: Mm. Okay.
1: Because
2: so often people jump out and so anxious to learn and gather and chit and chat. They don't know whether you're from the IRS, the DEA, the FBI, who are you and you're down here trying to get in my business. Right, right, right. And so I've learned that from people that I've done field work with, get to know the people first. Mm Mm-hmm. It may not be a good day for them. What's going on in their world? Got it. Because I'm a student of the '60s, growing up in Baltimore with the war on drugs, war on poverty. We got interviewed to death by Division One scholars and universities, and our life got no better. Right. That's a lived experience. Mm, hmm.
0: Hmm. Hmm. I like that. Um. So let's talk about you growing up in your, in your background. Um, I mean, sort of what, expand on that. What was it like growing up? I think you said in East Baltimore in the sixties, like what, what was that like um, as far as just the community and and what was going on at the time? Since I'm from the Midwest, I don't know a lot as much about kind of, you know, Maryland, Virginia, DC area at during that time period. Right. Um, yeah. I have my own experience. My mom has her own experience with that, with Detroit in the 60s. But I'd be very interested to hear what your experience was like.
2: Well, for me, it would start with, as I indicated, my mom was from the greater Rocky Mount area of North Carolina. My dad was from below Fedville on the South Carolina border, mm-hmm. Lumberton and, and Lumberton. And they migrated in the 50s to Baltimore. So that's how my family got to Baltimore, and they had other relatives that were there before, and others came after. And during my formative years, we lived in an integrated community. Mm. And I had a white woman that lived next door to us in East Baltimore. And she gave me all of her National Geographic magazines. Mm stacked up and tied together with cord. And she would hand them over the fence. And I would go through that batch and get another batch. In addition to that, she introduced me to Raisin Bread. And I'm to tell you, the combination of National Geographic and Raisin Bread, I mean, I thought I was a prince. <laughs> I traveled the world in my basement through National Geographic. I mean, their glossy pictures, the photographs, the animals, the landscapes, the the cultural variety of the people. And when I would do book reports or bulletin boards at the school, I would sprinkle in a little bit of Jet Afro-American newspaper in Ebony, but National Geo won the awards. (laughs) I think I, I'm still a Little Vinny from East Baltimore, so I'll put those in. But what I would say is that I have other friends who are retired Supreme Court Chief Justices. Mm-hmm. And or the area I lived in, Sugar Hill, mm-hmm. because uh, they were in 22-story high-rises and down in the projects and no trees, nothing green. And in East Baltimore, that was very predominant. But we lived in an integrated part of East Baltimore with a front porch and a backyard. And my mom was a school teacher in the community. My dad could not make money in teaching. And so he went to the post office and then ended up in the canneries and so forth and Baltimore, in Baltimore and a can manufacturing plant but with a college degree mm. shipping and receiving clerk that wore a starch shirt to work and they called him Uncle Tom mm. because he wasn't on the floor on the line but he gave all the boys in the neighborhood jobs for the summer
1: mm. Mm. interesting and,
2: and again so that's one part of it I'm trying to set a stage for you but also, every summer, my older brother and two younger sisters got shipped back down the country every summer. Mm. And I worked in cotton and peanuts and sugar cane and hunted and fished. And that just provided a great contrast to the grit and grind of the city. Mm. And gave me an early land-based experience that really shaped who I am today. and. I described myself as a country boy from East Baltimore. <laughs> Once people stop laughing and say, ain't nothing country in East Baltimore, I say I am. But one day, I was on a golf course, a country club, and described myself that way to a white gentleman. We were introducing each other on the first tee. I said, hey, I'm Vince, country boy from East Baltimore, and laughed. And he said, sir, I understand that sentence. He said that to him, that means that I have a strong work ethic and streetwise. And so I've kind of walked into that spirit. Mm -hmm. And that aligns with the intellectual gangster, the guys that can make the speech and leave the white paper or the black paper. It depends on what point they want to make, but they can write both of them. Right. Right. And so that has really informed, you know, who I am. And and to a great extent, as I look retrospectively at my life, I would say I was raised as a prince mm. with the type of people that saw enough in me to pour into me.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: I always had an affinity for the older guys. I mean, I again, going back to East Baltimore, uh, I would go up on the strip. I mean, that's where all the action is at, on the strip, and figure out who was in charge Mm -hmm. and make myself their special assistant. So I was with the top pool shark, top preacher, top politician, part hustler, whoever was in charge, because one thing I learned early on from my granddad in North Carolina, good help is hard to find and it's hard to find today. And what he drilled in me was Vince be good help.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because
2: system protects good help. Mm -hmm. You protect good help. I protect good help. It's Mm -hmm. hard to find Mm -hmm. and we'll give good help breaks. It yeah. Was not bad help. Right.
0: Agreed. Agreed.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and subsequently, I worked for five governors. Mm, okay. And so that same guy that was with the golf pros and the hustlers and the preachers and the politicians, I uh, always fashioned myself to be good help. And today, I'm good help. Mm-hmm. And, and so. when Go
0: ahead. So with that, though, I mean, I, I like that that setting the stage right in the National Geographic's, in, Geographic and geographic and kind of just uh, even being shipped back to North Carolina. Um, since you were since you and your siblings spent that sort of summers in North Carolina. Um, you know, did you kind of when you were down there ask any questions about your family history? Did you you know, have you done your own family history research and have you discovered Anything interesting in your background?
2: Well, one of the things is that by my mom and dad being college educated during that era, or many people, if they had a third, fourth, you did good if you got to the seventh grade because that's as high as the colored schools went. And those right. that they were both leaders in their families,
1: mm-hmm.
2: extended families, and. I was their special assistants. And so they believed in family. They would go to family reunions. And we started with reunions under the oak tree, but then we evolved to weekend extravaganzas in the ballrooms with two or 300 people and would invite family and friends. And this was, I would say from the 70s up to uh, 2000 plus, when they had the Black Family Reunions on the mall, and then they had the Black Family Institute up in uh, Philadelphia and things of this nature at the uh, colleges and universities when that time it was really trending.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: They say that uh, our work was uh, cutting edge that we would do tributes to black farmers, salute mm. children, women in the family, men in the family. And they were photographs along with essays. Mm. My mother would serve as the chairman and we had an editorial board, which I was part of. And we would just ask people to do the best you can, send it in and we'll straighten it out. Mm hmm would produce journals every year. And so part of this Blacks of the Chesapeake local legacy collection, all of these journals are in that collection. Mm. One of the things that as I began to work with the Maryland archives and folks in library science and the genealogical community I had never looked at my body of work from a genealogist standpoint, mm-hmm. but I have had for-profit genealogical organizations from Israel and other places around the world reaching out to me,
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: trying to find if there's some alignment where they could gain access to this collection. And I heard it, I got the email, we tapped back a couple of times and I let it go. But I was dealing with folks up in Baltimore that are part of that whole genealogical community and the Mormons have a center up there and just the importance of names, importance of surnames and- Mm -hmm. Names that are in this 30-year collection may be the Rosetta Stone or the missing link to someone else's story.
0: Right. And
2: also how people commercialize those products Mm -hmm. uh, to help further other objectives that they may have that may not be linked to that at all. They might be interested in fast cars. Right, right. So oh, this is one thing I've found. And then also my background in history and culture. I just learn in a very eclectic way, uh, music and art and hieroglyphics and pig Latin. And I mean, I'm just a sponge for information and have the tolerance and the temperament where I can sit by the rocking chair and listen.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Uh, but what I also know is because of the way I learn and process, I really know a little bit about a whole bunch Mm -hmm. and it's almost like the old well we had down on the farm. My granddaddy would say, well, Vince, always leave a little water in the can because you got to prime the pump and sometimes if you're able to put a little water in there and then work it and get the hydrology working the mm. pump works
1: right. right
2: and when people see that you know a little bit they are more apt to share more
0: mhm yeah yeah and and with the the collection that you have in these um you know all the stuff that you guys are doing the family reunion the photographs and the essays um have you you know you said you've written books have you written written a book about your family history are you uh is that something that if you haven't you plan to do in the future and sort of uh the second part of that question what books have you written so far sort of what have been kind of the the subjects of those
2: well one of the things is that with these 30 years of journals from both sides of my family, where we would have Thanksgiving programs and sunrise service programs. And in most cases, I had a hand in producing those things. And so with that body of work, my thought is more of an anthology Mm. is a way to advance that. Uh, In 2013, on my dad's side, it's called the Graham Family Circle. And we had a 100th anniversary from the first gathering in Mother Catherine's yard in South Carolina in 1913, where she saw her sibling's soul into slavery. Mm. And she vowed that every August that she would bring her family together and we would never separate. And in the 1970s, my dad formalized the Graham group incorporating it in North Carolina and in Maryland. And again, the academic gangsters. (laughs) It's one thing to say, yeah, we have a group, but then once you take the step and incorporate it, it's another Layer of officialdom. Mm-hmm. It makes a downtrodden people stand up and feel more important because our organization is Grand Family Circle Inc. Mm-hmm. And many times people of color don't understand Inc. But they know it's important. incorporated. it.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: so I produced a document called "From the Cotton Field to the Rose Garden: The Grand Family Circle's Walk of Faith." And it was uh, researched and narrated. It was a uh, musical, theatrical production at our family church in North Carolina. So it's those kinds of things. Even in my book, The Chesapeake Bay Through Ebony Eyes, Hmm. uh, this book uh, contains vignettes of men and women that I've Met along the reaches of the bay, but by my dad being a sportsman, uh, we had the Leggett's Sportsman's Club, and we hunted and fished in North Carolina and in Maryland. And uh, he's included in the book, but the book was published in 1999, and is still one of the more popular books on the Chesapeake Bay. Hmm. And what is giving it staying power are the recipes.
1: Mm, Okay.
2: Because recipes are snapshots of history. Mm -hmm. And people always say, well, Vince, when are you going to write the coffee table book? I could write a $80 coffee table book next week. My mom will have one, my doctor and my attorney. My products are geared to educators Mm -hmm. because as an educator, not as classroom teacher, but an educational administrator and a planner, I take the position, the teachers can't teach what they don't know. And we can sit around and bellyache about what school districts are doing or not doing. But as I indicated, I'm the former president of the Anna Arundel County Board of Education here in Annapolis. And at the time, it was the 45th largest school district in the nation. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote the book, developed the curriculum guide, marched it through the review process and had approved as supplemental materials of instruction and have had other school districts adopt it. And in states like New York and in Maryland, we have 24 counties in Baltimore City. Hmm. And I had to go to each county. In New York, they buy for the whole state. In Texas, they buy for the whole state. Mm -hmm. I don't have to run around to every little county or subdivision, and they pay sticker price. And so, again... It's being schooled by people to see how the big boys and big girls do things. And I'm just, you know, little Vinny looking, leaning, listening, but smart enough to extract from that, scale it to my realities, Mm -hmm. but put together systems.
0: Throughout the course of my kind of 20-year career in -hmm. genealogy, I have heard folks you know, talk about making genealogy as part of "quote unquote" a curriculum. Like, I know my uh, sister when she was pretty young. I think she might have been third or fourth grade had like a genealogy project. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, she got like an A plus because I was like, "Here you go," <laughs> right? So she just gave everything. Um, but people have talked about that, and I've even had that discussion not only at kind of the K-12 level, right? But also at the higher education level. So how difficult is it to, when you talk about these supplemental materials of instruction, how difficult is it to, let's say, get a, if I wanted to have a curriculum for African, or on genealogy for African-American students, right? And it's supplemental, but as part of that, they also learn more about Black history. So how difficult is that to kind of have that happen within school districts, not only here out in California where I am, but where, you know, with your experience in Maryland. And then do you have any experience with trying to get uh, curriculums into higher education institutions in your area?
2: A couple of things. One, as I indicated, my background is K-16 education. Mm -hmm. I work suburban and rural school districts and at a community college for 10 years okay and so that's part of the the context for my next statement i wouldn't try to get a product in the nine to three education it's like a bermuda triangle you go in the front door nothing comes out the back door you'll run out of time or money
0: right. before
2: you finish that so let okay. me just start there Supplemental education is the, to me, I've found a better route to take because you're not fighting the curriculum managers, you're not fighting the school board, you're not fighting the PTA, because that nine to three period, one they're teaching the tests, everybody's beat down with accountability.
1: Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. If anybody, if the people aren't reading, not factoring, not learning, and they find out you have any bootleg material in that classroom. They're looking for somebody to pin it on. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Now, with the supplemental material, it's optional. Mm. So that's step one. Get on the approved list. And that's that fight is not as hard it still has to go through the rigors of review where we had uh, one photograph in one of our publications and a guy had a cigar in his hand hmm. because people kind of, the reviewers are kind of looking at what's influential. Uh, is it a beer or is that a soda pop? Right. So, you know, Get through that kind of stuff. That's what gets some people tripped up. They don't think it's a big deal. But something like that can shut down your project. Mm -hmm. And so first things first, get on the list. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then the second thing is uh, have a crab feast or a boat ride for the teachers. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You know, because... One, once they know you're on the list, they know it's been approved and screened.
1: Mm -hmm. So
2: fight that battle. Got it. But then how do they know you're out there? And so what kind of outreach can you do? I mean, going to the PTAs, going to the teachers' convention, uh, just letting people know that your product is available. I think is important, and also have it sized for, as they call it, scope and sequence. How is this going to fit into the scope and sequence, and what objectives are met by your work? And many times you have to be able to tell them; mm-hmm. they're not going to figure it out on its own. And so with my Ebony Eyes book that uh, we introduced it to fourth grade because that's when innovation and industrialization and technology takes place and so forth. And so I've had school districts buy the book for all fourth graders. Mm, Okay. And so you know, you pick up the onesies and the twosies. Right. Right but if you can pitch it properly and get it into the sur- scope and sequence uh because i know even when i go to book shows book fairs i mean in the civic centers
0: yeah
2: i'm in a different category on the showroom floor because i have a book and a curriculum i'm over in the education section I'm not over there fighting with 50,000 titles. Right. With pop up stands and pop up banners and giving out titsy rolls and all. No, I'm in another section. Right. And by bringing in the curriculum guide, that's also approved as a companion. Mm -hmm. You already can see and hear that's going to set me apart on the ballroom floor. Right, right. So and that's then- what I—that's what I would say. I think that that is a more productive route, and then also we work more with after-school summer programs.
0: Mm, okay.
2: Even in our school districts now, I mean, nobody can get on field trips. Uh, the 24 plus is $1,000 now.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You can't pile them in the car, put them in your mama van. I mean, <laughs> right. liability.
0: Right. So, w- thank you for that, because that's that's very interesting, and it's kind of something that, that I thought about, and I know that others uh, have thought about too, especially because we, you know, really, at least for me, I like to bring genealogy to the masses, and I feel like from my my own personal journey in genealogy, I became more interested in history once I started doing genealogy and became really a student of history because I wanted to put my ancestors in context of American history. Right. And what was going on at the time. Um, but I would my last question for you sort of is with everything that you've done in your career. And all the the books you've written and documentaries you've been in and sort of, uh, you know, the collection that you have and the work you have going on at the Maryland State Archives. Sort of what's next for you and what's next for the Blacks of the Chesapeake Foundation?
2: Well, one of the things is uh, two major projects. One of them is uh, land conservation and uh, heritage preservation that I was part of a team that rescued five acres of what was formerly a 180-acre beachfront property in Maryland that was home to two fabulous African-American beaches, Cars Beach and Sparrows Beach, that operated from the 1930s to the mid-60s during the period of segregation,
1: mm-hmm. when
2: people of color were restricted. I mean, you had to the Bruce's Beach and things that you had down in Santa Monica. They have a story of, through eminent domain and taking and some restoration took place. There was out the Outer Wild up there in Michigan, up on the Detroit side was where the James Browns, the Little Richards, the Sam Cooks, Aretha Franklin all played there. Sag Harbor uh, up in New York, uh, the Royal Theater in Baltimore, Howard Theater in D.C., but during the summer months, Carr's Beach, Annapolis, Maryland was the mecca for black entertainment where Chuck Berry had 70,000 people at a concert. Uh, James Brown would pack in 10 and 20,000.
1: Mm.
2: And out of that initial 180 acres that Fred Carr acquired in 1902, myself and our team were able to rescue the last Five acres and purchase it for $6.5 million. Mm. And so that's what I talk about when people talk about African American sites anywhere in the country. The majority of the time, that's a push pin or a dot on a map.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: We're able to rescue authentic dirt. And that is higher order thinking. That is higher order engagement to be able to rescue authentic spaces. Mm-hmm. And because the other part of that 180 acres are gated communities, wastewater treatment plants, classic environmental justice. If you pour black limited resources, the landfill is going to be in your neighborhood, cancer alley, smokestack, Pollution. Mm -hmm. So that's, so this whole enterprise around land conservation and heritage preservation is cutting edge when it's led by people of color. Mm -hmm. And I get calls from around the country and with a how to, how did you pull it off? We had, you know, the, Atlantic Beach versus Myrtle Beach. I mean, we've had these pockets all down New Orleans and everywhere else because we couldn't go to theirs and we started our own. And so it's the business, the economic impact. I guess the latest shiny penny that went across the screen for me is that I just returned from a nine-day immersion experience in Dakar, Cynical. Mm. Uh, with the door of no return Mm. on Gory Island because the city of Annapolis was a place of embarkment during the transatlantic slave trade like Charleston, like New Orleans, like other places. Mm -hmm. And United Nations, UNESCO, United Nations Education Scientific Cultural Organization, UNESCO, have been identifying these port markers. Well, a group of Senegalese mariners came to Baltimore to meet with me, and they had brought a six-foot model of a boat that they built that historically came to Brazil prior to Columbus. mm and they bought the model to me. They arranged for me to go to Dakar, where they built the original boat, and I sailed it on the Senegal River. Wow. So not to have a vision to build a boat, I flew over there and sailed the boat. Wow. The idea now is to raise money to buy a chase boat where it can hold the crew, hold the fuel, hold the provisions, because it is a sailing vessel. And they're going to sail it from Dakar to Brazil to Jamaica to the Chesapeake Bay and donate it to the Blacks of the Chesapeake. Oh, wow. I have school kids and Discovery Channel and Nat Nat Geo. They're already tracking me down. Coming full so, circle. <laughs> yes, so that's the latest shiny penny that has come across the screen, and uh, it was just—I will just tell you, Kenyatta. When I touched down in Africa, I kissed the ground, and when I got back to Dulles International Airport in Northern Virginia, Washington D.C., I kissed the ground twice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Life with me, and again. Uh, don't know the language French and Wolof and customs, but we didn't go in as a tourist and didn't go in politically high, but went over as a cultural attaché. Mm-hmm. I'm still from East Baltimore. I'm <laughs> a cultural attaché now, sister girl. <laughs> it is the maritime arts. And so met with boat builders and sailors and went to the fishing villages. And so it just wasn't a tourist trip to the door of no return. And yes, I'll process that experience the rest of my life. It was so phenomenal.
0: I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah.
2: But again, just, and we stayed on a compound where they were building chorus, the African harps, they were building gym drums, Mm -hmm. They had businesses where the ladies were doing all the fabrics because when we were on Gory Island, those booths, garments had made in Japan in the label. Mm -hmm. You follow me? Not follow you. (laughs) Made in China, made in Japan. These were women down in the bush making the stuff as a micro business and they were trying to help and they were black and white people, part of this compound. And uh, it was just such a transformative experience. And so my new project is called Hands and Hearts Across the Atlantic. Hmm. And working with the uh, DeJauw University in Senegal and people in Ghana and Liberia. And and so it's really become a capstone project for me because it still builds on The blacks of the Chesapeake, because even the 300 year African transatlantic slave trade, it just became so specialized that Mm -hmm. if you wanted people that knew how to work in mines, if you needed people to work in herds and cattle, if you knew people to work in the maritime trades, you put in orders for them. It -hmm. just wouldn't go over there and grab me a bunch and throw them on the boat. Right, right. And, and and Lords of London was insuring them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Brothers was outfitting them.
0: Yeah. And I think that's an excellent I love that that project. Um, and I've been taking a lot of notes because you've given me a lot of great kind of insight and ideas for things that you know I might want to do as I look to expand and branch out for my own practice and kind of focus. Um, and I, I do feel like the focus. On the transatlantic slave trade. I mean, I do a lot with the domestic slave trade, but the focus on the transatlantic slave trade is something uh is something that we need more of. I think that folks need to really understand, especially about the specialization. I think, you know, I've tried to with some of these books I have from folks that have written books in the 40s or whatever, um, mm-hmm. around that and and around how. You know, there were certain areas where people knew how to do certain things. And so that yes. you said you put in that order for them. And I think it's if it, We know more about that. And when folks mm-hmm. come to me and say, hey, Kenyatta, trace my family back to Africa. I'm like, hold up. You know, like, let's talk about sort of where your family was and sort of how long they've been in that in that area, whether it's in Charleston, whether, you know, it's in Maryland or it's in New Orleans or you know, in uh, North Carolina or Virginia, right? And I I hope that folks, you know, reading this will understand and have an interest in learning more about the transatlantic slave trade and its impact on, you know, kind of the the 400,000 or so that were, uh, you know, forcibly removed from Africa and came to the colonies, And that kind of, yeah. And that, you know, the foundation of our 4 million, so to speak, right. That were emancipated, um, post after the civil war. So.
2: As I told you, these phenomenal beaches with the James Brown nose, I carried pictures with me. And as we sat around the campfire, Mm -hmm. pictures out on the table, Mm those brothers and sisters could look at the shapes of the people's head in the pictures. It was throngs of them. Mm -hmm. Shoulder to shoulder, looking at Ella Fitzgerald Singh or Sarah Vaughan, all heads up. Right. Tell from the shapes of their heads, their eye structure, their chin structure, what part of Africa they were from and what tribes they were from. Oh, wow. That piece that blew my mind uh again i just i'm still processing that whole interaction Mm -hmm. where you weren't from as well as where you probably were from right that recognition Mm -hmm. and as i talked about my family in the 70s, my aunties went to Africa. I mm, mean, okay. with listen, seventh grade education working at a cook at the college. Because one of my older sisters uh cousins had a grant with University of Georgia and she was in Zambia and in Belize teaching micro businesses.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: here 30 years later, myself and my wife being part of this delegation and just how my aunties that had the silver hair were just treated with more respect in Africa as elders. Mm -hmm. And they came back and told my generation about it. And this was my first time going to the continent. And also for me, it was not going home; it was going to. Mm-hmm. You follow me? I have a paradigm shift.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I mean, I I hope to at some point to to get to Africa for sure. Um, I that is that is on my my one of my goals and on my list, but. I want to thank you so much. This has been, I've learned a lot. Um, I have notes front and back, (laughs) two different pen colors. (laughs) I was switching up my different pens. So I got a lot to look at and think about, especially when it it comes to the beaches. That is really something that's very interesting because the Bruce's Beach is actually a Manhattan beach, which is not too south of Santa Monica. Um, So I'm very familiar with that. And I just kept and I obviously while being from Detroit, but I do like that kind of land conser- land conservation and heritage preservation piece. That's I think cool. that's something that I would want to be a part of because as an attorney, seeing things with eminent domain and yes. what we are on, um, and having some uh, some land stuff that with my own family as it relates to oil, I think it's just that's just an area that needs to be explored. And, you know, as I always say there's so many stories in so little time. (laughs) And so we just need to engage folks and hopefully people, you know, reading this and um, that they'll be able to, to feel inspired because that's what I feel. I feel inspired to go out and to do more and to, you know, I know what my wheelhouse is. I know what I do is important and the work that I do is important, but there's also, so I could expand that. And so I think this conversation has definitely given me some ideas and ways to do that. And I thank you for all that you do. I had no idea when I saw you on television that I would learn this much in this conversation. I just was like, he looks interesting. Let me write his name down and just reach out. And so that's, uh, but it sparked a lot.
2: Love your spirit. Thank you. Conversations with Kenyatta is produced by Kenyatta D. Berry and Caitlin Owl. And features Kenyatta D. Berry. The music for this episode was Good Vibe by Ketza. Follow Kenyatta on Instagram under the handle kenyatta.berry, on Facebook at facebook.com/slash kenyatta db, and on Twitter at kenyatta db. You can also find more information on her book and upcoming events on her website at kenyattaberry.com.
1: As a reminder, the views expressed by
2: guests on conversations with Kenyatta are their own and do not reflect the views of Kenyatta D. Barry